Thank you for joining us. My name is Katie Heinley, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make it fisheries science. The American Fisheries Society wants to honor amazing people and projects with their annual awards. There are over two dozen awards handed out to individuals and groups at the annual meeting each year honoring excellence in fishery science, promotion of diversity, and public outreach. There are several awards for students and young professionals too, which often offset the cost of attending the meeting. If you know of someone worthy of recognition, head to fisheries.org for more information or search American Fisheries Society Awards. Applications and nomination packets are due by April 1st. Today, I'm interviewing Troy Smith. Troy was born and raised in rural Maryland and moved to Missoula, Montana in 2009, where he received a Bachelor's of Arts in English. For the next decade, Troy worked as a fisheries technician in Western Montana, Northern Michigan, and Southern Idaho for various agencies and universities. He received his bachelor's and master's in wildlife biology from the University of Montana in 2019 and 2021, where his master's work focused on variations in migratory patterns of fluvial West Slope cutthroat trout and drivers of hybridization between West Slope cutthroat and rainbow trout. Outside of work, Troy enjoys hunting, fishing, trapping, backpacking, gardening, and spending time outdoors with his wife, Ellen. In addition to 10 years as a fisheries tech, he also worked as a freelance writer, hunting guide, construction laborer, and factory worker. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. You uh, read that a lot better than I would have. Well, it helps that I can, like, I know that I can edit out all the really bad, bad parts. So. <laughs> I wanted to start a little bit with your background. Specifically, how did you go from a degree in English to uh, your current career in fisheries? Yeah, I went into it pretty sideways, like most 18-year-old kids starting college. I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, my dad was a logger. And so, like, I love being outside in the outdoors, but I figured if you were going to work outside, yeah, I'd be a logger, a park ranger, or a game warden. And I wasn't really interested in any of that. I knew I liked to read and write. So went to college, got a degree in English. And after I graduated, my roommate at the time was a fisheries major. And sitting in the at the kitchen one day, he was, hey, we need some help doing some backpack electric fishing this summer in the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana, would you be available? Like, I don't know anything about any of that. Like, like, don't you need to like degrees and stuff? He's like, no, it's as long <laughs> as you can, you know, carry a backpack and not create a bunch of issues. And so that's kind of how I got started slinging a backpack shocker up some pretty steep, rugged mountains in Western Montana. And thought, man, I didn't know like you could do this and make money at it. Not a lot of money, but you know, and so at the time I had been, I was a copy editor and freelance writer and I was kind of, wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so, uh, you know, I had some contacts at the university at that point and just started picking up contracts to go out and do some shocking for forest service for a month or pick up temperature loggers for two months. And then, you know, people started calling me like, Hey, would you be available for three months to, you know, help us with this or, and so it kind of just, I kind of fell into it at that point. And, Mm -hmm. It was a it was a weird way to to kind of discover <laughs> a, a career path that you know I didn't really know existed. What brought you to Montana originally from Maryland? I wanted to get as far away from the East Coast as possible, <laughs> and so I was actually headed to Alaska. And I had, at the time I was you know, just turned nineteen when I moved to Montana. You know, two thousand miles from anybody I knew, and. I had I'd done two years at the community college there outside of Rockville, Maryland, outside of D.C. And thought, well, I'll at least finish up two years in Missoula just so I have the degree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 12 years later or 13 years now, I'm still in Missoula. <laughs> so <laughs> I never did make it to Alaska. Yeah. So, yeah, it was mostly school that brought me out here and you know, just big wild country. 
I think it's pretty easy to get stuck in Missoula. It's a pretty good place to be. <laughs> There's a vortex too. Yeah. Like people that leave just kind of get sucked back in. Everybody's yeah. just trying to figure out how to get back to Missoula. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you've worked a few jobs outside of fisheries. What skills do you think you gained while working as a hunting guide and a freelance writer? How did those translate into your career right now in fisheries? Yeah. I mean, as a, as a freelance writer, English major, I think the easiest one is learning to write well and write a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having deadlines that just every week there's a new deadline, you got to have another article out and you got to do good work. And so you really kind of, you learn to streamline your process. You know, a lot of the guys like Hemingway work for newspapers or reporters. And you know, he, I think he credits that experience of, you know, trying to really grind stuff out in order to meet deadlines to kind of giving rise to his style of writing. Mm-hmm. So, and then, you know, I was, I, I'll kind of sheepishly admit, I think my writing's gotten a lot worse <laughs> as I moved into science and fisheries or like maybe, maybe lazier. Yeah. Because I don't know, there's just not the same sort of demand to, to just keep churning stuff out of it. I mean, maybe for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been trying to be cognizant about not letting it get any worse. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I've worked, you know, I've done a lot of construction and in fisheries. I feel like I'm always building some you know, like pit tag arrays yeah. or it's usually like, you know, because agencies and universities are often strapped for budget and like digging stuff out of the trash to cobble together to like do science, which is kind of, you know, right up my alley. It's kind of like this dirtbag way of doing it. Yeah. But, you know, being able knowing how to put stuff together, just having familiarity with tools, processes, learn, knowing how to weld, like, oh, like. I've seen it done this way. We can maybe try, you know, gluing some PVC pipe together and running mm-hmm. wire through it to make pit tag arrays or, you know, how are we going to make mobile anode shockers? And then I, I guess one thing that I didn't really mention in that bio, and it's not, it's not real popular out of Vogue, but I actually um, was a fur trapper through mm-hmm. high school and college. There's a way to, you know, I actually paid rent a couple months trapping mm-hmm. boxes and kind of that with being a hunting guide, you know, just, being out in the on the landscape and the world and sort of looking at it with sort of active eyes, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so like in fisheries, you know, we're often working with systems or, you know, animals that are kind of hidden beneath the water. And so we only kind of get glimpses of, of what they're doing or, and a lot of it's, you know, sort of imagining or, and it's kind of the same way with trapping, like a lot of these animals are nocturnal. So it's like, Oh, uh, where you know, looking at this landscape, where might a beaver be? Where might he put his foot? Or, you know, why would a would a pine marten be on this ridge or the next ridge over? And you know, learning to look at tracks and just, yeah, just kind of looking at the world um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a more active way. Yeah. I could see that. I very recently got into hunting and it's always funny to me the, the mind shift that you get. You just feel like way more present than when you're going out for a hike or just going out to spend the day outside. It's, it's a lot more trying to think of like the right word more engaged I think yeah yeah you feel a lot more engaged which is pretty cool and so and so when you're engaged you're kind of you know your your senses are tuned up a little bit you start picking up on stuff that you don't normally look at yeah like I can look at a track in the snow going 60 miles an hour down the highway and I can tell you oh that's a coyote or that's a deer <laughs> you know just because looked at a million of them at this point right yeah I think it, I mean, I, I probably just need to do work on this more when I'm actually in the field doing work, but the most analogous is when I'm doing snorkel surveys. I feel like I get that same kind of yeah. sense of just like really being present in the moment. That, that predator instinct kicks in. Right. <laughs> yeah. You've worked a lot of different 
tech jobs as well within fisheries. And so I didn't want to list all of those out, but I was wondering which of those were some of your favorites coming up to your master's degree? Yeah, I, I guess I, I'll start by saying, I don't think I've ever had a bad job yeah. working in fisheries. They've all been, you know, either working in super cool place or, you know, both working in super cool places and super cool people doing cool things, learning about new landscapes and new systems. The question was, what was my favorite or just yeah. talking about? I'm sorry. I guess I'm probably going to have to go with uh, working in Northern Michigan with Lake Sturgeon, which I know you're familiar with mm-hmm. that. And I, I think I'll pick that one because it was such a, I think it was at a time in my career where I was like not hundred percent sure if I was going to stick in fisheries or what I was really doing. And this was working with Michigan State University, Michigan DNR on the Black River, uh, Black Lake, mm-hmm. Lake Sturgeon population, which has been a not sure how long that study's been going on, but it's been over a decade at least. Yeah. Some really cool research has come out of there. And plus like the field work is super cool. You're in the water with these giant fish and bumping into them, handling them and netting them. (laughs) Netting them. Yeah. Yeah, It was a, it was a good group of people to work with. So I think I, I I think fondly at that time, um, there were some shenanigans too, that were probably not able to talk about. Right. (laughs) Comes with most field jobs, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and then you also did a lot of fisheries work and research while you were working on your undergrad degree. Do you want to talk about some of the research you did there? Yeah, <laughs> not really. Uh, <laughs> I guess if there's any undergrads out there listening or thinking about doing like a undergraduate research project, try not to pick one that takes you three years to finish when you only do your undergrad for two years. Yeah. So at, at the time I was working for Montana Fishwife and Parks as a seasonal technician in the upper, or I guess the Rock Creek drainage in the middle Clark Fork here in Western Montana. And there was a lake in that system that somebody in the 1980s had dumped their bait bucket out and introduced red side shiners in this mountain lake. And the population just blew up and to the point where it was affecting the, the trout fishery. And so state biologists said, you know, I'd love to look into this, but I just don't have the time. I've got all these other pressing issues. I don't have the personnel or the resources. And so I worked with my advisor, Dr. Lisa Eby at the University of Montana. And, you know, so we kind of went up and start really started from scratch. Like, all right, what's going on? How many fishery, how many shiners are in here? You know, are they started looking at vital rates? Are they growing faster or slower? What's their generation time? How fecund are they? And, and we kind of used all this to build a population model. And, and the, the question that managers want to know is, is there anything they can do about it? Can they suppress this population either through introducing or not introducing, but stocking more fish? Mm-hmm. Can they, are they going to have to just rote known it and start over? And so our, our goal was to sort of build this population model and then test these hypotheses or these suppression methods. And the first year, 2017 was a big fire year in Montana. So we actually, the whole site burned over. And so we got to shut out. I got enough data to collect to actually do stuff with. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we had to keep going, but we got burned out of the site for the first summer. So the second summer went back in, got the rest of the data. And then uh, after that, it was just all processing lab samples, looking at really tiny otoliths, a lot of stomach samples, stabilized stuff. So we tried build this story around what's going on in the lake are these mm-hmm. are these shiners even causing an issue and to what can we do about it and so like like most sort of invasions you know either they're not successful or they're really successful what we found is that these shiners were growing really fast they had really high survival rates 
pretty fecund for their size. The females had like some of the females had over a thousand eggs in them for a three inch minnow, basically. Mm-hmm. And at least what we were seeing from the stable, stable isotope data and gut contents that the trout that were in the lake really weren't eating them. And so likely what was happening is they were cropping off food resources for trout and that was sort of leading to the declines in, in growth rates in trout. Right. And so I, after another year of writing and revising and reviews, I did manage to publish it in the North American Journal of Fisheries Management. Yeah, that's awesome. I really forgot how much your undergrad thesis was essentially a master's project. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend that. And I think I'm helping another student or an undergraduate now on their senior thesis in Rock Creek. And I had mm-hmm. to talk to the biologist like, look, I know you got a lot out of mind. That's not going to be the norm. Yeah. Like, you have to reduce your expectations. We can't have undergraduates doing you know, three-year projects for you. Yeah, no kidding. But it was a really cool project. I remember I helped with fieldwork one of the days for that, which is pretty fun. And it's awesome that it turned into a publication for you as well. From there, I, you went pretty much right, straight into your master's at the University of Montana. Do you want to talk about that research? Yeah, I got my degree in in English in 2011, spent eight or nine years as a fish tech. And so 20. 18, 17, I realized that if I was going to make a career, I was not just work part-time seasonal jobs. I had to actually get an undergrad in wildlife and then graduate degree. So yeah, I, I did two years as, to finish up my undergraduate in wildlife and then just rolled straight into a master's degree. And again, we had, I had a, a good working relationship with Montana Fish Wild Parks at that point. They had some other projects they wanted to do. And so what I ended up working on was West Slope cutthroat trout migration and hybridization in Rock Creek in Western Montana. And so kind of what drove that was the state was curious. I was working for the state at the time. So we, the state, were curious about where some of these cutthroat were going in terms of like, are there tributaries we really need to be focusing conservation efforts on? And so we tagged 33 cutthroat in 2018 with radio radio tags and just follow them up the creek, see where they're going. You know, that first year, nothing crazy. We did see them go into some tributaries that were pretty small that were a little surprising to us that they were using to spawn. But mm-hmm. the big finding that came out of that was if folks are fishermen or fisherwomen or whatever, you know, they probably heard of Rock Creek at some point. It's, I think, one of the most heavily fished waters in western Montana. You know, being up there, we run into folks from not only across the country, but uh, across the world. People, I've seen people from France and England coming mm-hmm. over to fish Rock Creek. And it was predominantly a rainbow trout fishery from the 20s to the 70s, actually into the 90s even. And then um, whirling disease, like most of Western waters, showed up in Rock Creek and really decimated the rainbow trout population. But because of the historic high numbers of rainbow trout, we figured that, well, yeah, we're looking at cutthroat, but they're probably all hybridized. And out of those 33 cutthroat, we tagged first the first year, 30 of them were not not hybridized. And so it was kind of like, whoa, you know, maybe we've been, we kind of have written off Rock Creek as, you know, really a, a non-hybridized cutthroat stronghold because we just assumed like, and there were so many rainbow trout, like something like a thousand rainbow trout per mile back in the seventies. And so that kind of was like this, oh, maybe we really need to like figure out how they're holding on. We've done a lot to really kind of hammer the native fishery in, in Rock Creek over the years. And yet somehow we're still holding on to non-hybridized cutthroat. And so we spent three more seasons tracking cutthroat hybrids and rainbow trout. And what we found is that cutthroat are making, have a, have a really wide variety of migration 
distances or I don't, even, mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to call them, energies, but distances. So we had some fish that were only moving a couple kilometers from their winter, summer habitats up into a tributary and back out. And then we had other fish that were moving 80, 90 kilometers out of the main stem of, of the Clark Fork up through some pretty degraded habitat and spawning in tributaries that we just assumed weren't really migratory cutthroat spawning habitat. Right. And so kind of what we found there is that there are some really classic, important tributaries that are supporting half of the migratory population of cutthroat, but then there's 12 other tributaries that are supporting the other half. And so if you're trying to conserve a fluvial migratory species like Westlip cutthroat, yeah, you, you, you can't lose these really important tributaries, but they really need a lot of tributaries. And so you can either, you know, it's a death by one major blow or death by a thousand cuts. Right. And then looking at the sort of hybridization side of it, you know, there's been a lot done, especially in Western and Northwest Montana on hybridization between West Slope Cutthroat and Rainbow Trout. And the big concern is that they keep back crossing potentially into these hybrid swarms of just entirely hybridized populations. And we don't really see that in Rock Creek. We had genetic data, habitat data, spawning data, movement data, and across the base of Rock Creeks, I think the main stem is 50 three kilometers long. Mm-hmm. So it's a decent, it's not a huge drainage, but it's a pretty big one. And what we found was that like a lot of previous studies that that distance from source or dispersal pressure is driving a lot of the pattern. So the highest abundance is rainbow trout are coming out around the mouth and that's where we see most hybridization. But mm-hmm. we also see that there's sort of mating or non-random mating in where rainbow trout and rock creek, for whatever reason, don't leave the main stem of the river. Okay. They don't go into the tributaries. In the four years of the study, we never saw a rainbow trout go into a tributary, whereas most of the cutthroat are going to tributaries. And then even within the tributaries, we see cutthroat spawning higher, so further from the mouth of the tributary, and generally later in the season. And so in these sites that are largely non-hybridized, we actually see significant differences between spawning timing and space. And so that kind of indicates that, yeah, dispersal is a big driver, but you also have these other sort of the microevolutionary forces like selection, non-random aiding, population size that are feeding into what really shapes that landscape pattern. And so if we're just looking at dispersal or if we're just looking at environmental factors, we're kind of missing the, the larger picture right. of what might be driving or why, why one tributary is different from another, why one basin is different from the other. Like been a lot of studies on the North Fork of the Flathead up by Glacier National Park on hybridization. And Mm -hmm. we see a totally different pattern in Rock Creek, despite that it's still cutthroat and rainbow trout hybridizing. That's so cool. Yeah. Such a cool project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, I I was a little worried when I started like, oh, it's just going to be the same thing that I think maybe everybody is Mm -hmm. just where like, oh, it's going to be the same thing everybody else has done. But there's always, you always learn something new and it's always really cool. Yeah. So you're saying that closer to the mouth, you're seeing more hybridization. So is that those fish that are only moving like a couple of kilometers to spawn? Those tend to be more yeah. hybridized? And so like even with our radio telemetry data, we see that just total movement of rainbow trout is far reduced than hybrids, which is even further reduced than cutthroat. So just where like okay. the highest upstream and downstream movement we see, which suggests mm-hmm. that those rainbows are not, they're just not going anywhere. And whether that, whether that has something to do with rolling disease, we don't know. Maybe the ones that managed to make it through did so because they weren't moving across the basin and getting more exposed to those TAMs or whatever. Right. And, and so that kind of translates into this, this really strong relationship between how close you are to the mouth of Rock Creek and those sites being highly hybridized, but 
you know, we also see some variation in that. We see tributaries that are basically across the valley from each other having wildly different distributions of hybrid individuals. And so that's kind of where it comes into that. Okay, maybe there's some intrinsic selection going on. Maybe there's some environmental selection. We didn't see any evidence of temperature. So cold water has been thought to, we see that hybrids don't do as well in cold, less productive Mm -hmm. habitat, but there's often a correlation on the landscape between as you're closer to the mouth of a typical mountain system closer to the mouth, lower elevation, it's generally warmer water. And then as you move up the drainage, you get into these higher elevation, colder systems. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of temperature, propagule pressure is often correlated. And Rock Creek is different in that we actually see some really cold streams down by the mouth and we see some really warm streams up in the headwaters. And so we, we were able to kind of break that apart a little bit. And we found that some of our coldest streams that were like eight, nine degrees mean August temperature were pretty hybridized. And we had some streams that were 14, 15 degrees mean August temperature and mm-hmm. entirely not hybridized. <laughs> and so there, there, there certainly are some environmental factors that limit hybridization, but again, it really just drives home that it's, it's that propagule pressure. And yeah. that even though we have these other selection forces, non-random mating, that propagule pressure side just starts overwhelming all those other ones. I feel like this is going to be a dumb question and I should know this, but <laughs> can you define propagule pressure? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. So propagule pressure is, it, I think it mostly comes from the plant world and thinking about seeds. And so if mm-hmm. you've got, you imagine like two fields, one with a invasive plant and one with a, a native plant, and there's way more seeds on the invasive side that are getting blown over into the native side that's high propagule pressure. So those okay. individuals, those starting individuals, Whereas if you know you only had just a handful of invasive plants, that's pretty low propagule pressure. Okay. So it's just sort of like this, yeah, it's almost like this pressure. Pressure is a good word for it. It's just, it's yeah. just always there. And it's always pushing against it. Okay. It's just how high that knob is turned up on if it's high pressure or low pressure. So for your system, there were a lot more non-hybridized cutthroat making their way up. And so that was that like higher propagule pressure, even under like warmer stream temperatures in those tributaries. I'd say it's more lower rainbow trout prop. So there's a, okay. a pretty strong gradient from Rock Creek in Rock Creek. As you move upstream, it's largely rainbow trout hybrids in the lower stream. And then as you move up, it's almost a linear decline. Mm-hmm. Until you get to the upper river where rainbow, I think for the last handful of years, they haven't even been able to get estimates on rainbow trout abundances during their annual monitoring because they're just so rare up there. Right. But in that real warm stream, which is the Ross, it's a major tributary, the Ross Fork of Rock Creek, we actually did detect uh, an F1 hybrid moving into that tributary during the spawning season. And right. so we don't know, maybe that's the first time an F1 has ever gone up into there. Probably not, just given that there's been rainbows and hybrids in there for mm-hmm. getting close to 100 years, but um, you know, can't say for certain. But that might indicate some um, selective pressure against hybrids that you know maybe they're getting in there. Either they're not finding mates because they're assortively mating, or maybe they are crossing, but there's some intrinsic selection. And we, we know that hybrids are generally, rainbow trout alleles are generally broadly selected against across habitats mm-hmm. in western Montana. So. Yeah, their dispersal pressure is low in those upper, there that propagule pressure is low in the upper okay. river, but it's still fish still or hybrids still make it up into there. And so it's not, it's not zero, but it is low. Cool. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> How did you figure out, I'm, this is just a sort of selfish question because I'm thinking to some work that we'll be doing this summer, but sure. how did you decide which fish were migratory when you were sampling for them? Was it just any fish that were in the main stem or was it a certain size category? 
I mean, what's what's a migratory fish, really? And it's just yeah. a category we put on fish. What we what we called migratory was a fish that was captured in the main stem of Rock Creek and then returned to a tributary to spawn or or made a large movement. So mm-hmm. more than 15 kilometers. And so we were for our rated telemetry, we were targeting fish over 350 millimeters. So basically the top end of fish in Rock Creek that we assumed were mature, mm-hmm. kind of the oldest age class. And yeah, that was, that actually came in discussion point a couple of times. Like, is the fish migratory if it moves into a tributary or what if it runs 60 kilometers up river, but stays within Rock Creek? Does, does the tributary matter to a fish or is like, they, they don't, there's no distinction in their mind. Right. Just because we changed the name of the creek. It's, it's all one continuum. But yeah, that was, there were a lot of discussions about what actually is a migratory fish. You know, what is a migratory life history? Mm-hmm. Are we, we're looking at migratory life history. Is this just a behavior? Is it just differences in distance? So yeah, there's a. <laughs> no clear answer. <laughs> it's no clear answer. Like, yeah, there's no textbook definition that everybody's going to be like yeah that's good yeah you're just going to have to kind of figure out what works for the question you're asking and yeah hope that it doesn't ruffle too many feathers yeah i think what we were as far as like what our plans are right now i think we're going with like any fish caught in the main stem of the yellowstone is considered migratory and i was curious if any of the work that you guys said was like well maybe we can inform it a little bit better i mean and i'm not as familiar with yellowstone but one of the questions we had is our cutthroat spawning in Rock Creek. You know, we often right. think of, at least have historically thought of cutthroat as being moving into tributaries, small headwater tributaries to spawn. But historically, you know, they might have stayed within main and spawned in main stem habitats. And so when we saw a fish come up from the bottom of Rock Creek and stop five kilometers short of the confluence with all the forks, it's like, well, is that a fish? Is that fish spawning? Or is that just some kind of just exploring, checking out some new habitat? And, you know, and, and when you're looking at spawning fish the water's high it's turbid you can't see them right. you just kind of have to use your your data your data points and like yeah it kind of looks like a spawning run it's the right time it you know it's got a pretty good track where it's rapidly moving upstream but yeah you know, I, we we did luck out a couple times we actually were able to get some fish in some small tributes and stick a gopro in the water and could actually see them on reds and a little bit of spawning behavior so we weren't totally off on some of those calls but right. yeah a lot of them was kind of just hoping right <laughs> Are you guys in the process of publishing this or does that have some more work to do? Yeah. My advisor probably wishes I was further along in the process of publishing (laughs) it, but yeah, both chapters are going to get published. I think at least they'll get submitted to the journals here probably for the next month or two, hopefully. Awesome. Awesome. I'm hoping I learned a lot from the first review process. And so maybe it won't take as long. Right. I feel like I was just scarred from trying to like publish my senior thesis. (laughs) It took so long. Yeah, I think for for folks out there listening that haven't published, you know, don't don't be discouraged when you it's going to feel like they're just tearing it apart and everything you did was pointless, but they're just they're trying to help you and make it better and and yeah, we went through some some pretty major revisions on ours, but it made it such a better mm-hmm. a better publication and much more useful to everybody. Yeah, that's how I felt about mine too. I remember I'd like read the reviews and like, oh, they just don't understand what I was doing. And then you take a day or two, go back and I'm like, oh no, that's actually a really good point. I should change that. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. Yeah. Read it and then and put it away for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> let your emotions subside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we move on to your next job, I wanted to talk a bit about while you were at UM, because I was an undergrad at the same time. 
I think you were probably one of the most active people I knew about getting other undergrads involved in research and field work. And I was just kind of wondering, why did you find that important or like what drove you to help other people out so much? I think sort of because I came into fisheries in a non-traditional way or even into science in a non-traditional way, I didn't, and and still I, I feel a little bit like I've you know, everybody talks like, oh, I missed that day in kindergarten when they told you, you know, play nice. I feel like I missed some important day and in, in where everybody else who went through the normal path of fisheries and science, like got some instruction that I've missed. And so, I, you know, maybe that's some imposter syndrome or whatever, mm-hmm. but I, yeah, I, I still always feel like I'm like, there's, there's, there's some secret meeting I missed. And I, I've felt that much more acutely kind of coming up through as a technician, as a lab tech into undergrad. And I think my interest in, in helping folks out was trying to alleviate some of that, like give folks, you know, that sort of demonstrated some, some real interest and aptitude for science and research and fisheries, kind of give them an avenue or, you know, maybe knock down a couple barriers. Mm-hmm. Things I wish somebody had done for me yeah. <laughs> at some point, even though I had, I had some really great mentors and some real advocates. And I think some of that was just my inability to articulate what I needed. My wife would say I'm a great communicator when I want to be. <laughs> but yeah, I think just so sort of recognizing other folks that you know, they could really they could really use the help. Maybe, maybe it might totally change the career path they're on. I've definitely talked people out of <laughs> fisheries and even I've even talked folks out of going to college. I remember you saying that. <laughs> I remember as an undergrad at standing at the big lecture hall that we everybody goes through for you know intro to biology or intro to mm-hmm. chemistry or whatever it was with 300 kids and I had a I had my hunting hat on and some kids oh I like your hat and oh yeah and got to talking a little bit he goes oh I really want to be a hunting guide so I'm like well, why are you in college then dude it's like well you know my, my parents want me to go or it's like well if you want to be a guide just go do it like you don't have to go to school for this if mm-hmm. you don't like you know college isn't going anywhere get out there, try it. Cause otherwise you're going to sit here and not pay attention the whole time, wishing you're out guiding or in the woods running around and you're not going to get out of it. What you would a couple of years after you kind of figured a couple things out. And yeah. I think I saw on Twitter or Facebook, like a month later, he had quit school and uh, got hired as a guide. And I think the last I saw, he was still guiding and loving it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's not always just funneling people into what I'm doing. It's trying to help the folks find their own path or yeah. I'm not a great mentor for sure. And I get, you know, I don't know if maybe it was a regional thing, but there used to be like an ad council PSA about being a foster parent and some like cutesy way of being like, you don't have to be the perfect parent foster kids just looking for a parent. And I think it's kind of the same thing with being a mentor. You don't have to be a great mentor, but you just have to like show up, be there, try and try and honestly help mm-hmm. people. And that's, that's huge in itself. I'm kind of laughing because one, I don't agree that you, you weren't a good mentor because I think you were. <laughs> But I'm laughing because my next question was, what advice do you have for other grad students or early career folks to be a good mentor? So I know you don't think of yourself as one, but how did you approach being a mentor? (laughs) Yeah, I I guess like I just said, you don't have to be a perfect mentor. You just have to be not, I guess, dedicated, but at least in my experience, the people I've mentored, you know, they come like, oh, how do I do, you know, this really technical aspect, but then they might ask you like, oh, trying to find a place to rent or you know, I've got this issue in my life and I, I've gone to my mentors with the same thing. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it's not just showing them how to do, you know, how to code in R. It's trying to provide some life advice. And yeah, I guess my uh, approach was just try and show folks like these are the mistakes I made. These are the things I think I did right. Here's sort of how you can maybe not make the same mistakes I made. 
Yeah. And, you know, sort of learn from what I've done, apply it to yourself. And I, I guess the other thing is I've always tried to, this, this might seem a little dark, but try and give mentees enough rope that they're not going to hang themselves with it, but that it's going to kind of hurt a little bit when they hit the end. <laughs> because if you're just like really leaning on them and kind of spoon feeding them a little too much, it's going to look great on the resume, but they're going to kind of lack some of those. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to see somebody that you are invested in that you think has a lot of potential that you know might be a friend you care about to see them struggle and and I, I could do this in like five minutes and, you know, solve all their problems, but you're, you're robbing them of that same learning experience you had. Mm -hmm. That's so valuable to you as a mentor that you're now imparting to them. And so I guess also, I think I, I think I said sort of an honest approach. Like if you're just trying to mentor somebody for your resume or whatever, it's not going to benefit them. You know, I've mentored people because I actually wanted to see them succeed and Mm -hmm. I don't even mention that stuff on my resume, really. I might, it may be a passing line, like a cover letter or something, but yeah, I, I did it because one of my goals in being a mentor was trying to get more women involved in fisheries because, you know, even in, in Western Montana, where it's really competitive, where a lot of fisheries professionals in Western Montana are like me, they're white middle-aged males. <laughs> and I don't think that's by design necessarily, because you look in other parts of Montana and there's a lot of women and minorities. I don't know. It's probably some factors that I'm not aware of, but I, uh, that was kind of some low hanging fruit was yeah. able to try and help underrepresented groups get involved because they might be intimidated. You know, <laughs> I, I believe our lab, Dr. Lee is now the diversity, equity, and inclusion chair for the program now. Oh, but awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I gave her a hard time a little bit because we had one of the most non-diverse labs for the last yeah. couple of years. <laughs> somehow, somehow we ended up with all white males from the East Coast. And that's not historically how it's been. And it's, I think they just brought on a new uh, woman as a PhD here, but it was just kind of this weird confluence of things. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I could imagine being uh, an undergraduate that is looking at, you know, interested in fisheries or aquatic ecology and looking at this lab that looks nothing like them. It's all white males that are even like, you know, like I said, we're all East Coasters for the most part. And so it was, you know, we all were very uh, homogenous. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that, that seemed like it was an easy thing to, to try and remedy. But I was trying to think of all the other people that I was around. I mean, I consider you one of my mentors. I was always happy to go out in the field with you and get advice and help with homework while we went to undergrad. But then there's like Adrian and Tori and Maggie and then also like Hayden and some other people too but it definitely was a not maybe not like a concerted effort but I felt like it was noticeable the impact you're having and bringing people in especially through our subunit of AFS and recently you just got a new job which is exciting with Idaho Fishing Game I know you haven't really started yet but tell us kind of an overview of what you'll be doing in that position yeah, I, I guess probably when this podcast airs I'll have been in the job for a whopping like one week yeah <laughs> <laughs> So right now I haven't started yet, but I'm starting very soon. I'm the new fisheries research biologist on the Kootenai River White Sturgeon Project in very north Idaho. And that's a project trying to work with a bunch of different stakeholders, Montana, British Columbia, the Kootenai tribes of Idaho, dam operators, to work to try and get this species off the endangered species list. Um, Kootenai sturgeon is isolated geographically, and so they're, they're a distinct population. And after the construction of Libby Dam in the 70s, wild recruitment of the population has just been zero. Mm. It's kind of the story of sturgeon everywhere. For the most part, dance and sturgeon don't really mix. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of people interested in not letting this population blink out. There are Kootenai tribes of Idaho 
of a really robust hatchery program. And so we've been able to kind of keep them on kind of like CPR almost because we're still not getting, we're basically zero wild recruitment. There is some, but it's not really meaningful. And so my job is going to be out there collecting data for Idaho fish and game, monitoring populations, looking for wild recruitment and using that data to kind of model the population. What can we do to improve wild recruitment as the changes in water releases from dams? Can we mimic natural hydrologies in order to key fish into moving into better spawning habitat? Are we seeing potentially adverse effects from any management actions we're doing? And so, yeah, it's really just kind of monitoring this population and providing good data, good science to work with partners who eventually try and get this species off the uh, endangered species mm-hmm. list. That's about all I know so yeah. far. <laughs> it'd be, I, maybe, and maybe you know this already, it'd be interesting to see if it's a similar issue that they've had with pallid surgeon and the, the drifting embryos, whether it's like that anoxic zone that would be affecting it or if it's something else. Yeah, I think um, it's actually maybe, well, it's a bit of a hybrid between the Black Lake population mm-hmm. and pallet surgeon where there's successful spawning fertilization, but because they're spawning down in more sandy habitats, that those eggs aren't adhering to okay. the rocky substrate that you typically find further upstream. And so there's some thoughts that, you know, eggs are just getting suffocated when they're getting stuck in sand or getting buried. And so I, I think Idaho has actually done some habitat improvements to try and improve spawning habitat where, where the sturgeon are currently spawning in order to kind of get some, some rocky substrate in there. Cool. Okay. Well, I won't ask you any more questions on that, but maybe we'll have to like <laughs> have you on for a follow-up once you actually have done yeah, we can follow it up in a year or two when I actually yeah. know what I'm doing. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. And then the last question I have before our final five, we touched a bit on your intro, but I always like to ask people what their hobbies and interests are outside of fisheries and conservation. Yeah. I try not to let my work be my hobbies and interests, try and have some (laughs) work-life balance or whatever they call it. And yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of the typical wildlife fisheries outdoor professional and that a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, spending time outside. And I kind of realized at some point, man, I really pigeonhole myself. I should try something different. So I tried I've tried gardening. Uh, <laughs> it has not, well, sometimes it goes really well and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. It's really, really variable in success from year to year. So last year, I think I had so many cucumbers. I didn't know what to do with them. Got so, so tired of eating pickles. <laughs> and then this year, kale did not do well, but got a lot of, like, I don't know, the squash hybridized or something. <laughs> got a lot of really weird looking squash that I gave away to folks and they were a little, <laughs> they were a little off put by it. Like, this thing. <laughs> really know so yeah i think my hobbies i think really revolve around food i guess mm-hmm. i mean i like i like cooking i don't know if i call cooking a hobby but i like putting a lot of effort into my cooking and making good food and then kind of the extension of that is gardening hunting fishing mm-hmm. trying different things i'm not i'm not an adrenaline junkie so i don't like ski or uh, mountain bike or anything yeah not for me yeah fair enough <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think in the original script, we joked that this part, like the tough part of the interview is over, but I think these final five questions are probably a lot harder than any of the previous ones. So you can decide, but we ask each guest that comes on the show, these ones. The first one is what is your favorite fish? Uh, This is going to be a cop out or at least sound like a cop out, but I think it's sturgeon in that and somewhat that's not ironic, but I guess coincidentally, I actually got a painting or a, one of those um, fish print paintings of a white yeah. surgeon five years ago at Western AFS, six years ago now mm-hmm. from Bruce Koike. And I'm folks that ever meet me or see me in person. I, I don't look it, but I'm actually um, Japanese American. And so we had a, a good laugh over 
you know, kind of growing up Japanese American, but it's a, it's a fish printing of, of a white sturgeon. And now I guess I'm working with white sturgeon. Yeah. Uh, serendipitously <laughs> yeah but i don't know sturgeons just have sort of like this zen quality about them where they're and you just can't stress them out they just they're not short-term fish man they're looking 100 years down the road and that's just something cool about that to me yeah sturgeon are awesome every time i see one i'm like oh forget how cool you are <laughs> you have pretty eyes too yeah um what is your favorite memory from your career so far man i don't know if i actually have a favorite memory or like one point that I can pick out, I think rather it's sort of this, I guess it's sort of like this amalgamation of just getting to work in some really cool places with this awesome people. And so like when I think about my career in fisheries so far, it's not like, oh yeah, I remember going in, like hiking 10 miles into this super cool alpine meadow, to, you know, survey native fish. It was, you know, oh man, I've done that 50 times across different landscapes and ecosystems with different people and different cultures and sort of, you know, you know, the Northwoods of Michigan are just as pretty to me as the sawtooth of Idaho, mm -hmm. as the Bitterroots of Montana, as Badland breaks of Missouri. Missouri River. And so, yeah, it's just been kind of, kind of like the memory of just being in the fishery profession is kind of my favorite memory. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The next one, this might be hard to answer since you just got a new job, but what is your dream <laughs> job and location? Yeah, it would be bad if I was like, oh, yeah, not really. Uh, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I think uh, like, yeah, this job is super cool. We'll, we'll see if it turns out to be a dream job or not. Honestly, cool fisheries everywhere. There's cool projects everywhere. There's so much water in the world. I think what would determine a dream job for me is just being close to some good elk hunting. Yeah. <laughs> that should be pretty close to Northern Idaho. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some good hunting up there. Yeah, good. All right. If money was on issue, what is one project you would like to work on? I'm going to cheat a little bit in that. I think maybe just having not worked with a lot of projects that were cash flush, I, I mean, m money and resources is important, but what I think I would rather have is a project where there's a broad community support for that fish or fisheries. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, somebody, I don't know who it was, I, I wish I did. Somebody famously said that the best for the greatest grizzly bear habitat is the human heart. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of coming up into the world where it's not so much just returning species to where they've been extirpated, but sort of working with communities and people who recognize the intrinsic values of these fish and fisheries. And so, yeah, being able to work, and then there's communities out there, and I've, I've, you know, I think like Onaway, Michigan, mm -hmm. there's a huge, like people love sturgeon up yeah. there. And I think because of that, there's been some really great conservation work. They also, they do have a good bit of money, but you know, they can always use more, but yeah, I think I, I would take that. I would take, you know, broad community support, passion and, and people willing to like do the hard work to, you know, and I'm not just like, you know, professionals, but like community members, the people living there, you know, being able to do the hard work to support that resource. Yeah, that sounds so nice. <laughs> So every time I'm like, talk to people about my research, I'm always hesitant. I'm like, oh, people just love brown trout and I just don't. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard way to, it's going to be a hard road to hoe there. It is, yeah. <laughs> the last question is if there's one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? It wouldn't be a good thing for me to put anything in anybody's head. Um, <laughs> but I guess one, and we, we actually touched on it a little bit. One thing that I try and always remind myself is that life and biology, it really isn't categorical. It's, you know, continuous, it's a continuum. And so, you know, whether that's trying to figure out whether a fish is migratory or what, you know, what makes a migratory fish or not, what people's values are. Yeah. And we, 
as humans, we try and categorize things because they're they're neat, they're distinct. We can sort of limit the amount of, you know, it, it's, it takes a lot of brain power to think about things as a continuum. If you can just like section people off or fish off or, you know, biological process off into these nice discrete categories, that's way easier to think about than them as sort of all melding together mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, feeding back into one another. But I think doing that, we, we lose a, a lot of information, a lot of understanding. So I think folks just every once in a while, you know, I'm nobody's gonna be perfect at it, but just every once in a while, remind yourself like, yeah, it probably isn't as categorical as I think it is. It might be, there might be a little bit of both. Yeah, I think that's great. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. It was really fun catching up and hearing about your work again. If people want to find out more about the work you're doing or get a hold of you, how would they do that? Uh, I'm not on any social media. <laughs> so I guess probably the best way to be to get a hold of Region 1, or the Panhandle Region of Idaho Fishing Game and ask for Troy Smith. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm willing to talk to folks about stuff I'm doing currently, what I've done in the past. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I'm not an easy person to get yeah. a hold of, unfortunately. <laughs> especially in, in today's world now without giving out my phone number. Right. Yeah, no. I don't need a, I, don't, I got enough spam calls as it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'd do, suggest doing that over a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That worked. If you'd like to get a hold of me or the podcast, you can find me at KB Hindley on Twitter and the podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheries pod, or send us an email to feedback at the fisheries podcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Katie Heinley. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, in life and biology, things are more often continuous than they are categorical. 